Chapter Three of Studies in the Psychology of Sex, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. Studies in the Psychology of Sex, Volume Two, by Havelock Ellis. Chapter Three: Sexual Inversion in Men, Part Eleven. The next case belongs to a totally different class from all the preceding histories. These, all British or American, were obtained privately. They are not the inmates of prisons or of asylums, and in most cases they have never consulted a physician concerning their abnormal instincts. They pass through life as ordinary, sometimes as honored, members of society. The following case, which happens to be that of an American, is acquainted with both the prison and the lunatic asylum. There are several points of interest in his history, and he illustrates the way in which sexual inversion can become a matter of medical-legal importance. I think, however, that I am justified in believing that the proportion of sexually inverted persons who reach the police court or the lunatic asylum is not much larger in proportion to the number of sexually inverted persons among us than it is among my cases. For the documents on which I have founded the history of Guy Olmsted, I am indebted to the kindness of Dr. Talbot of Chicago, well known from his studies of abnormalities of the jaw and face, so often associated with nervous and mental abnormality. He knew the man who addressed to him the letters from which I here quote. HISTORY 26 On the 28th of March, 1894, at noon, in the open street in Chicago, Guy T. Olmsted fired a revolver at a letter-carrier named William L. Clifford. He came up from behind and deliberately fired four shots, the first entering Clifford's loins, the other three penetrating the back of his head, so that the man fell and was supposed to be fatally wounded. Olmsted made little attempt to escape, as a crowd rushed up with the usual cry of, Lynch him! But wavered his revolver, exclaiming, I'll never be taken alive! And when a police officer disarmed him, Don't take my gun! Let me finish what I have to do! This was evidently an allusion, as will be seen later on, to an intention to destroy himself. He eagerly entered the prison van, however, to escape the threatening mob. Olmsted, who was thirty years of age, was born near Danville, Illinois, in which city he lived for many years. Both parents were born in Illinois. His father, some twenty years ago, shot and nearly killed a wealthy coal operator, induced to commit the crime, it is said, by a secret organization of a hundred prominent citizens to whom the victim had made himself obnoxious by bringing suits against them for trivial cases. The victim became insane, but the criminal was never punished, and died a few years later at the age of forty-four. This man had another son who was considered peculiar. Guy Olmsted began to show signs of sexual perversity at the age of twelve. He was seduced, we are led to believe, by a man who occupied the same bedroom. Olmsted's early history is not clear from the data to hand. It appears that he began his career as a schoolteacher in Connecticut and that he there married the daughter of a prosperous farmer, but shortly after he fell in love with her male cousin, whom he describes as a very handsome young man. This led to a separation from his wife, and he went west. He was never considered perfectly sane, 
and from october eighteen eighty six to may eighteen eighty nine he was in the kankakee insane asylum his illness was reported as of three years duration and caused by general ill health heredity doubtful habits good occupation that of a schoolteacher his condition was diagnosed as paranoia on admission he was irritable alternately excited and depressed he returned home in good condition at this period and again when examined later olmstead's physical condition is described as on the whole normal and fairly good height five feet eight inches weight one hundred and fifty nine pounds special senses normal genitals abnormally small with rudimentary penis his head is asymmetrical and is full at the occiput slightly sunken at the bregma and the forehead is low his cephalic index is seventy-eight the hair is sandy and normal in amount over the head face and body his eyes are gray small and deeply set the zygomi are normal the nose is large and very thin there is arrested development of upper jaw the ears are excessively developed and malformed the face is very much lined the nasolabial fissure is deeply cut and there are well-marked horizontal wrinkles on the forehead so that he looks at least ten years older than his actual age the upper jaw is of a partial v-shape the lower well developed the teeth and their tubercles and the alveolar process are normal the breasts are full the body is generally well developed the hands and feet are large olmstead's history is defective for some years after he left kankakee in october eighteen ninety two we hear of him as a letter carrier in chicago during the following summer he developed a passion for william clifford a fellow letter carrier about his own age also previously a schoolteacher and regarded as one of the most reliable and efficient men in the service for a time clifford seems to have shared this passion or to have submitted to it but he quickly ended the relationship and urged his friend to undergo medical treatment offering to pay the expenses himself olmstead continued to write letters of the most passionate description to clifford and followed him about constantly until the latter's life was made miserable in december eighteen ninety three clifford placed the letters in the postmaster's hands and olmstead was requested to resign at once olmstead complained to the civil service commission at washington that he had been dismissed without cause and also applied for reinstatement but without success in the meanwhile apparently on the advice of friends he went into hospital and in the middle of february eighteen ninety four his testicles were removed no report from the hospital is to hand the effect of removing the testicles was far from beneficial and he began to suffer from hysterical melancholia a little later he went into hospital again on march nineteenth he wrote to dr talbot from the mercy hospital chicago i returned to chicago last wednesday night but felt so miserable i concluded to enter a hospital again and so came to mercy which is very good as hospitals go but i might as well go to hades as far as any hope of my getting well is concerned i am utterly incorrigible utterly incurable and utterly impossible at home i thought for a time that i was cured but i was mistaken and after seeing clifford last thursday i have grown worse than ever so far as my passion for him is concerned 
heaven only knows how hard i have tried to make a decent creature out of myself but my vileness is uncontrollable and i might as well give up and die i wonder if the doctors knew that after emasculation it was possible for a man to have erections commit masturbation and have the same passion as before i am ashamed of myself i hate myself but i can't help it i have friends among nice people play the piano love music books and everything that is beautiful and elevating yet they can't elevate me because this load of inborn vileness drags me down and prevents my perfect enjoyment of anything doctors are the only ones who understand and know my helplessness before this monster i think and work till my brain whirls and i can scarce refrain from crying out my troubles this letter was written a few days before the crime was committed when conveyed to the police station olmstead completely broke down and wept bitterly crying oh will will come to me why don't you kill me and let me go to him at this time he supposed he had killed clifford a letter was found on him as follows mercy march twenty seventh to him who cares to read fearing that my motives in killing clifford and myself may be misunderstood i write this to explain the cause of this homicide and suicide last summer clifford and i began a friendship which developed into love he then recited the details of the friendship and continued after playing a litz rhapsody for clifford over and over he said that when our time came to die he hoped we would die together listening to such glorious music as that our time has now come to die but death will not be accompanied by music clifford's love has alas turned to deadly hatred for some reason clifford suddenly entered our relations and friendship in his cell he behaved in a wildly excited manner and made several attempts at suicide so that he had to be closely watched a few weeks later he wrote to dr talbot cook county gowl april twenty third i feel as though i had neglected you in not writing you in all this time though you may not care to hear from me as i have never done anything but trespass on your kindness but please do me the justice of thinking that i never expected all this trouble as i thought will and i would be in our graves and at peace long before this but my plans failed miserably poor will was not dead and i was grabbed before i could shoot myself i think will really shot himself and i feel certain others will think so too when the whole story comes out in court i can't understand the surprise and indignation my act seemed to engender as it was perfectly right and natural that will and i should die together and nobody else's business do you know i believe that poor boy will yet kill himself for last november when in my grief and anger told his relations about our marriage he was so frightened hurt and angry that he wanted us both to kill ourselves i acquiesced gladly in his proposal to commit suicide but he backed out in a day or two i am glad now that will is alive and i am glad that i am alive even with the prospect of years of imprisonment before me but i will cheerfully endure for his sake and yet for the last ten months his influence has so completely controlled me both body and soul that if i have done right he should have the credit for my good deeds and if i have done wrong he should be blamed for the mischief as i have not been myself at all but a part of him and happy to merge my individuality with his olmstead was tried privately in july 
no new points were brought out. He was sentenced to the criminal insane asylum. Shortly afterward, while still in the prison at Chicago, he wrote to Dr. Talbot, As you have been interested in my case from a scientific point of view, there is a little something more I might tell you about myself, but which I have withheld, because I was ashamed to admit certain facts and features of my deplorable weakness. Among the few sexual perverts I have known, I have noticed that all are in the habit of often closing the mouth with the lower lip protruding beyond the upper, usually due to arrested development of upper jaw. I noticed the peculiarity in Mr. Clifford before we became intimate, and I have often caught myself at the trick. Before that operation my testicles would swell and become sore and hurt me, and have seemed to do so since just as a man will sometimes complain that his amputated leg hurts him. Then, too, my breasts would swell, and about the nipples would become hard and sore and red. Since the operation there has never been a day that I have been free from sharp shooting pains down the abdomen to the scrotum, being worse at the base of the penis. Now that my fate is decided, I will say that really my passion for Mr. Clifford is on the wane but I don't know whether the improvement is permanent or not. I have absolutely no passion for other men, and have begun to hope now that I can yet outlive my desire for Clifford, or at least control it. I have not yet told of this improvement in my condition because I wished people to still think I was insane, so that I would be sure to escape being sent to the penitentiary. I know I was insane at the time I tried to kill both Clifford and myself, and feel that I don't deserve such a dreadful punishment as being sent to a state prison. However, I think it was that operation and my subsequent illness that caused my insanity rather than passion for Clifford. I should very much like to know if you really consider sexual perversion an insanity. When discharged from the criminal insane asylum, Olmsted returned to Chicago and demanded his testicles from the city postmaster, whom he accused of being a systemized conspiracy against him. He asserted that the postmaster was one of the chief agents in a plot against him, dating from before the castration. He was then sent to the Cook Insane Hospital. It seems probable that a condition of paranoia is now firmly established. End of Chapter 3, Part 11 Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah, voiceovers by Kirk.com.